Hello, welcome to another episode of the Cats by 90 podcast brought to you by SB Nations, the Sea of Blue. Big Blue Drew and Aaron Gershon are here on the iciest night I can ever remember in my life. It's pounding down in the rain tonight on Wednesday night. So hopefully if you're in Kentucky, you're somewhere warm and um, you probably kind of need to be somewhere in a, in a safe space with uh, Kentucky Athletics as far as the basketball team goes. So lots of stuff to talk about. But um, Aaron, is it, I assume it's probably even like worse in Indiana. Oh, it's horrible. And it started way earlier. So got up to walk the dog this morning and could barely get to the grass to get him to go to the bathroom. It was uh, brutal. Fell once. So hopefully no more uh, falling when I go out later tonight. Yeah, I've been on ice skates uh, quite a bit today. And I actually, I just had to run out to grab a damn phone charger to, to do this podcast. And I had to yank on my wife's door with like all my strength to get it open. My first home I've ever owned with no garage. And boy, I'm going to pay for it. But again, it's just kind of the weather's miserable. Kentucky basketball teams definitely put us down in the dunks. But today I'm excited because we have Brandon Ramsey from Kentucky Sports Radio um, is going to join us. He's definitely a great X's and O's guy. So I'm excited to talk to him a little about what's going on. So Brandon, thank you for coming on the Cats by 90 podcast. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk some UK hoops, even if the product hasn't been great this season. I was going to say, yeah, that can't be true. I guess there, I guess maybe maybe a little bit of a tempered <laughs> excitement or something like that. But um, so, yeah, Brandon, I know you do some stuff for um, Kentucky Sports Radio and then you host a podcast. You have some coaching experience and I, I send you messages quite a bit. And I genuinely mean it like your work is, is so in-depth and good on the X's and O's side, which if you follow me and know me, I'm, I'm far more emotion and way less X's and O's. And I feel like Aaron's kind of in the middle. So I think we got a, a good mix of dudes tonight to kind of, you know, figure this stuff out. Yeah, no, no. Uh, this year it's hard not to have emotion uh, if you care about UK and write about them because they're just so pitiful. Well, I'm glad you started there, actually, because that, that was the first thing that I wrote down was the fact that week after week, Aaron and I have done this in some capacity. And I feel like each time the Big Blue Nation and us in general are just kind of like emotionally separating ourselves. Our emotional vulnerability, I feel like, has been cut to an all-time low, at least in my Kentucky fandom. And then that's why this week was so amazing, because this team found a way to lure you back in and just break your heart all over again, starting with Saturday. Because um, I'll ask you, Brandon, but I thought that was the best I've seen this Kentucky team play pretty much all season for stretches of that game. You know, they most points they've the volunteers have given up in a first half. And if nothing else, um, you know, watching them put the ball in the basket, you know, made you feel a lot better. But again, that was followed up by a colossal collapse. So it amazes me. And uh, would you agree, though, that, that Saturday was some of the best ball they've played? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that Saturday, you know, obviously for stretches, because we all were watching the game when they when they collapsed also. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in the first half, that was some of the best basketball they had played. And then really even moving on to the Arkansas game, they played really well in stretches there too. But that, that that's kind of been the, the MO of this team all season has been stretches that they can, like you said, they, they, they lure you in for a little bit. They, they get you having some hope. You feel like, okay, this is the, this is the game we turn the corner. And then just as quickly, they're back down 10 points and they're about to lose another game. And yeah, it's just frustrating to watch because you do have, it, it, it almost feels like it would be easier if they were just getting blown out game to game. I know that sounds silly, but like, I agree. They, 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 they just give you that little bit of hope essentially every single game. I mean, I know they talked about it on the broadcast last night, how they've been leading in like 14 of the 18 games in the second half now. And like, so they're 
you want to say they're close to being good, but you kind of know they're not by watching them. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there's a confusing team all around, honestly. Yeah. What about you, Aaron? Did you, so did you have any faith, I guess, in the last two games? Cause again, Kentucky was in it. And I didn't even realize that until the, like people really started putting these stats together this week, just how many games they've really been in late. I mean, I know that they've, you know, kind of been in a lot of them, but I, I didn't realize how many games in the second half they had had the lead and stuff until they were beating that drum a lot this week. So were you surprised at all, Aaron, or do you know, same story for as far as the last four minutes and stuff goes? Not surprised at all. Maybe if the Tennessee, I, I, that was definitely, I thought the best they played. They finally had a go-to guy for the first time in really maybe all year with Keon Brooks, the way he played in the first half and early on there in the second half. But I guess the fact that they started to melt down a little earlier than that four minute mark, um, I, 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 I was still at the point where um, it felt pretty good at that Tennessee game, but I always want to get to that four-minute mark before I can say confidently they're going to blow it or not. And the fact they got, you know, to the point where the game was over, basically, before the four-minute mark, uh, kind of that ended that one for me. And then the Arkansas game, yeah, I had no doubt um, they were going to lose. It just felt like a lost cause, even when Mintz hits that three uh, with not much, uh, what was it, like 10 seconds left, 12 seconds left? Uh, there was just, it had to end poorly. Unfortunately, that's just how this season has gone. Of course, it ends on a questionable foul call, but I see everyone complaining about that. This team missed nine free throws. You, you can't win games. That We saw them, even these good Kentucky teams in the tournament. That's been their Achilles heel and has knocked them out of tournament games. And it reared its ugly head for this team, too. Yeah, well, def- I want to definitely talk about the last play in the last few minutes in general of the Arkansas game. But let's stay high level for a minute. And, Brandon, one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask you when I'm, you, know, you told me you were going to come on was being in X's and O's, guys, coaching experience. I know you see the game um, a lot more in depth, I would say, than the average fan. How much of this 5-13 and 13 record would you just attribute to bad luck and how much is just actual poor play? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. And, I mean, you, you could come at it from, from a lot of different ways. I, I think that, you know, there's no denying the fact that there was a misevaluation of talent this year. Um, you know, like, you, you can pretty much go down the line, one through nine, one through ten, whatever our rotation is, and almost every single guy isn't as good as what we needed them to be, expected them to be, et cetera. So, you know, looking at it from that standpoint, there definitely is an issue in terms of evaluation of talent. And then when that gets on the court, you know, and I've said this countless times throughout the last couple of weeks, like it's frustrating. It's like there's only so much you can do at this point because the the players are who they are. You know, there's no free agency. We can't make trades during the season. Like we we have to roll with the guys that we have. And the, the, the truth is they're just not as good as we expected. Now, normally, that's like one guy a year. That's Khalil Whitney not being a very good player. That's that's Scal not working out as as as, mu- as much as we thought. You know, different guys like that. That's one guy per year. This year it happens to be you know three, four, five guys who were expected to contribute at a high level that aren't doing that. So I I think that that is probably most of it is just guys aren't as good as we thought. And then yeah, it, there's definitely a a little bit of a bad luck factor anytime you have as many close games and as many opportunities as, as this team has now, you know, you kind of create your own luck sometimes, but just look at the number of shots that we've had where, you know, Olivier Saar, I think has had two different shots rim out at the end of games that could have been wins. Oh, Obviously, yeah, I, forgot you, I kind of totally forgot about yeah. those. And Cal talked on his show this week too, Brandon, or yesterday, I guess it was, or maybe Monday, 
that um, nobody – he didn't feel like anyone on this team can hit the dagger shot, and that's been a huge problem for them. Maybe they have five or six more wins, and um, he really attributed that, and mm-hmm. I guess that, that's pretty obvious. But, man, that did suck, though, because <laughs> those two star shots really were touching net. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, there's definitely, you know, the, the, there's definitely a luck piece to it, but, I, you know, I, I, I still go back to you. I, I know I just mentioned it, but, you know, you, you do create your own luck a little bit, and I think that, you know, this team still – throughout 40 minutes of a game, they make enough just boneheaded mistakes that, you know, maybe we don't even deserve to be talking about how unlucky we are when you, you know, generally turn the ball over way too much or you don't execute some things offensively or on the defensive end or you don't rebound. So, you know, it, it goes both ways, but I, I, I circle back a lot to just quite frankly, these players on, uh, across the board just aren't as good as what we expected. Yeah, I, got, I agree with all that. Uh, Aaron, since you brought it up, so let's kind of go – uh, the, those, it was brutal, but I, I'll say this before we talk about the last two minutes of the Arkansas game, because I've said this every single time I've talked for probably the last six weeks. Kentucky, score, I think, scored 80 points in, in both of those games are, are close to it. It's just so much easier for me to watch, even though the games were heartbreaking um, in a sense. Like, I've said that forever, like at least watching this team be able to score some points. And I don't have all the stats in front of me, but just talking the way, however many threes that they hit and that so many assists on however many field goals, it was just incredible they found a way to lose that game. But they did because of the last few minutes. And um, we, we can start at the very end and work our way backwards because it was a couple plays. But as far as the foul goes, in my opinion, then I'll ask you, Aaron, Olivier Sarr fouled him beforehand. He slapped him in the face. So I know that, you know, the Toppin had ball on the next play, but it's hard for me to get too upset because if that was a Kentucky Wildcat driving to the basket and got slapped in their face and there was just a no call all around, um, we'd have been heated. So what was your take, Aaron? Did you see it that way or what? I I totally agree, 100%. I wasn't upset with the officiating at all. Again, I think that – (laughs) <laughs> I was a little annoyed last night with the grasping at straws from John Calipari. And I know it's been a frustrating year and he hasn't had a year like this since his first year um, at UMass. And um, this has got to pain him as much as anybody else. But the fact that they're looking for all these moral victories, like this is Kentucky at the end of the day. And for the game to come down to that last play uh, was a result of the, like I said earlier, you missed nine free throws. And you, did a lot, and you didn't play great defense. You gave up 81 points when you've been a defensive-centered team um, all year long. Um, they did a lot of good last night. They shot, they shot the ball a lot better from three than they normally do. They out-rebounded Arkansas, but they definitely didn't do enough to win the game. And if you put yourself in a spot where it's going to come down to a call, whether it's right or wrong, you probably deserve to lose. And just – it just didn't rub me the wrong right way seeing BJ Boston come up to the media and say, you know, the refs gave him that game. Like, no, you guys did it to yourself again. I know it's frustrating as hell, but that's what it's come to. And I think that, you know, you want these kids to be positive. You want them to finish out this year strong and not get into a bad mental state. But I don't see where moral victories um, help anybody here. Yeah, it was brutal. And I know I, it goes back to what I was just talking with asked Brandon about a minute ago. Is that it is hard, I guess, to, to assign any luck as, as part of the blame for this because they just constantly put themselves in this position. You're right. They've given up 80 points now in uh, two games in a row, 82 to Tennessee, 81 to Arkansas. And um, they, they actually only got the 71 points against Tennessee. But, man, they were just, I think, almost 39 or 40 points in the first half. So, um, now defensively they're struggling, but there, there was one other play too. There was a little questionable at the end of the Arkansas game. I think uh, Williams, I think for Arkansas, drove in a couple minutes, 
And um, they ended up, I think, calling Keon Brooks or Devin Askew for a foul. But it was clearly a travel beforehand. That was missed. They got a couple of free throws out of that. Um, I think that was with under two minutes to go also. But what about the last play? I know that was, that was tough. So I kind of had an idea, and I think it's now been said that that play was drawn up for B.J. Boston. He probably should have got the ball. But uh, just horrendous turnover, just, I mean, twisting the knife. So what, what was your take on that, Brandon? Did, was that, uh, do you agree with they just throwing the ball to B.J. Boston? Like, what did the set look like to you? Yeah, so and I, I just recently, probably an hour ago before this podcast, um, I, I put out that play on Twitter and kind of broke it down from, from the way I saw it. And, you know, the, that's the one end-of-game play that every college coach, in my experience, has in their bag. Like, when you're practicing an end-of-game situation in practice, like, that's the play that you run. So, assuming they practice end-of-game situations at some point, like, they've ran that play in practice, I can almost guarantee it. And, yes, like, B.J. Boston kind of cutting just on the ball side of half court, he was open. Like, you can go back and watch it. If you watch the clip, like, he's open. Jacob Toppin just doesn't throw it to him. Now, normally, you don't really mind. And and a lot of times you have to end up throwing it to Olivier Saar in that situation because, you know, B.J. Boston's a guard. Anybody that's cutting across like that is going to be a guard generally. So they're going to be – a little bit more tightly guarded, it's harder to get to that guy. But if you can throw it up to your big man, that's usually an easier pass to make. And then that, he's just supposed to turn and then either hit Davion Mintz, who was on the left sideline, or B.J. Boston on the right sideline. Mintz was open on the left sideline. Like if, if Sar would have turned, not dribbled, and just chest passed it to the sideline, Davion Mintz was open, he would have taken two dribbles and shot a 30-footer, and it either would have gone in or not. Um, so, I mean, the, the play design was fine. B.J. Boston was open. We could have got it to him probably going downhill to take three dribbles and get a shot up. But, you know, it, it didn't work out that way. And, you know, it, it's, it, it stinks. And it, and it is frustrating when, you know, last play of the game, the only two players to touch the ball are Jacob Toppin and Olivier Saar. That's and an generally not what you want. Too. Well, yes. And, and, <laughs> and then the Arkansas players, unfortunately. Um, but, 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 yeah, just from a play design standpoint, you know, it, it's what every single coach in the country would have gone to. In, in that situation, just um, it was poorly executed by us, which once again is kind of the, the story of a 5-13 and 13 season. So Cal also said on his show, he kind of talked a little bit, I think someone asked him something about like running more out of bounds sets or something like that. And he talked about, you know, typical Cal Kentucky out of bounds play is the biggest guy, holds the block, you know, he puts his off arm up and they kind of just toss mm-hmm. it into the big guy and they get into their set, if you want to call it that, I guess. So Part of me goes back, Brandon, and wants to say, like, maybe, you know, run some more stuff. Like, let's, nothing's working, you know. Let's try to get guys into their strengths more, getting better shots. But then I think a bigger part of me wants to say, like, this team clearly struggles just to do the smallest thing. So I kind of understand his standpoint this year and really all the years with the inexperience as far as not putting in a bunch of difficult sets and, and things that they have to remember. So what, what, would, what would your stance be on that? Do you think he should be running more X's and O's stuff? Or is this team, especially this year, just, just too far behind to really try to do anything extravagant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit on both of the important points there. First off, yes, it, it, if I was getting paid $9 million to coach this team, Kentucky would be running a lot more set plays. And I, I say that because, you know, generally Coach Cal is right. Like, Kentucky has the talent. They have the guard play. Like, you don't need to run extravagant offense – when you have NBA players playing college basketball, whatever you run is going to work because your players are really good. This year, it's the exact opposite. Like whatever we run 
isn't going to look very good because our players aren't very good. But the, the one way you can kind of mask some of that is just trying to get creative, throwing a bunch of set plays out there and trying to get a few cheap buckets each half. You know, like you, you don't have to score 80 points off of set plays, but it, if Kentucky could score six extra points in each half or four extra points even just in each half because we get an easy layup off of a set play, that's, that's one of the ways that bad offensive teams can manufacture points is by just running a bunch of stuff and, and, and trying to get a couple easy buckets a game. And I would like to see us do more of that. But the second thing you said was that, you know, this team isn't always the, hot, like, the highest basketball IQ group. And I, I don't know if they would, you know, it, it kind of sounds mean to say almost, but like I, I don't know if they would be able to do it if you threw, you know, three or four or five new set plays at them for every game. I don't know. I, I, I honestly think we would screw it up, to be quite frank. Um, yeah, that's, so that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, Aaron, so Cal was getting roasted a little bit too last night because uh, so Olivier Saar knocked down three three-pointers. Um, you know, him facing the basket appears to be, you know, a lot more effective strategy than kind of um, trying to play bully ball on the block with him, which hasn't worked too well all season. So uh, what would you think about that, man? Did you see anything um, different moving forward, I guess, with the way that they're going to use Olivier Saar? I, I would hope there is. I mean, I don't know why it's taken them so long to figure it out. Um, but he's just not, from what I've seen, he's just not as physical as some of the bigs that have come in here the last couple of years. I mean, it took Nick a little bit to get to that point, but we saw him just play bully ball down low. Even Reed Travis was able to do it to an extent um, a couple of years back. So um, PJ Washington, obviously both in the paint and he could do a little bit of everything, shoot the three, whatever he wanted him to do his sophomore year. But um, Olivier Saar just hasn't seemed to want to get physical down low or just at least hasn't been the more physical guy when he's been uh, matched up down in the paint. So I think that they definitely should just try to draw him out as kind of a stretch forward or not. A, I just don't, I don't know. I see I, I, Isaiah Jackson more of a center than I do um, Olivier Saar. Maybe, you know, you put Saar at the four or something. I don't know. But at, at the end of the day, what? We have six games left uh, in the regular season, seven if they uh, throw in that South Carolina game uh, during that makeup week. Um, so why not try everything possible to maximize the um, – results you can get out of these kids and try to get some good on something good on tape for these guys to just build confidence. Yeah, it'd be interesting how the last six games plays out. But as far as Olivier Sars usage goes, I play devil devil's advocate a little bit on two things. One, that sounds great when you knock down and you go three for five from deep. You know, I don't know if he goes one for five if um, everyone's kind of saying that same narrative of as far as letting him shoot a bunch. And then secondly, um, let me ask you this, Brandon. I've, he sets so many moving screens. This team has so many offensive fouls at like the top of the key and stuff. You, is that a reason maybe the Cal hasn't been doing some pick and pop with him just because he's constantly setting moving screens, whether it's his fault or the guard's fault? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that but based on the way, like, I'm, I mean, I, I, as a coach, I, I, I've watched Coach Calipari more than – you know, I'm, I'm sure most of our fans watch the players. Sometimes I watch the coaches just because I'm a nerd like that. Um, but w w when Olivier Sars sets an illegal screen, which is essentially every game, I, the, the way that Cal reacts and the way that he yells at him, like you can tell it's something that he is on him about constantly. It's like, you know, it, it's an issue in practice. He probably sets a million moving screens in practice too. And they're always telling him to stop it and he doesn't. So, I, yes, I mean, I – I, I, I do truly think that that probably limits how, how much they're setting ball screens with him, even though it would be really effective, as we saw at the end of the Arkansas game last night. You know, it, 
the last two or three minutes when Kentucky made their run, it was strictly Devin Askew, Olivier Sar side ball screen. We did it five or six possessions in a row, and we scored almost every single time, whether it be uh, Askew had that one really nice drive, finished with his left hand, a couple pick and pops to Sar. The, the, the last play, Sar slipped the ball screen, set a down screen for Mintz, and then he hit the three to, to take the lead. So I, I do think that he's just a little hesitant, especially – you know, throughout the course of, you know, the first 36 minutes or so when you have to worry about foul trouble, I think he is hesitant to, to put Sar in too many of those situations because he just doesn't seem to be able to, to, to go a game without to getting a cheap illegal screen. You're so right about to uh, somebody that's like, I, I guess you could say pleasure of being an earshot within Calipari for so many games. Like the one thing that pisses him off more than anything and you can tell is when it's just that repetitious thing. Like if he starts lighting into mm-hmm. you about like he, and he'll, you know, just yesterday and he'll list specific examples. I remember so much of that with uh, freshman and sophomore Nick Richards um, with him doing that and just making the same mistakes over and over and over. And he would always reference the bench as um, why, you know, <laughs> the solve for that so spot on about that well man we got so two coming up Arkansas and then hopefully Vanderbilt um well Aaron do you <laughs> I wrote this on my thing do you see a scenario because after yesterday I will say I do that this team could potentially lose out yes I, I can I think Vanderbilt is the most obviously the most winnable game left but you know I, I feel like this is the year where all these teams are breaking their streaks against Kentucky. We had Georgia, I think it was 14 games. Um, let's see, Arkansas, I think it was 2014, the last time they beat Kentucky. Uh, Mississippi State is like the only team that wasn't able to end their forever long losing streak against UK. So we'll see if Ole Miss can do it at the end of the year. But just the way that the SEC is kind of beating up on each other with the exception of Alabama, um, it's hard to predict. It's just hard to predict this Kentucky team could beat anybody, and we'll see. I think, obviously, they're a better team than Vanderbilt, but uh, they, Vanderbilt, of course, has some guys, and they've given Kentucky fits, and they've been really close to beating them at Rupp Arena, it seems like, every year. So this game at Vanderbilt, Kentucky usually plays pretty well out there. Um, I think that's their best chance at a win left, but, you know, I don't think they'll beat Auburn on Saturday. I, I think we saw – um, the matchup that Auburn poses earlier this year, and I don't think it's a good one for Kentucky. Uh, Tennessee, good luck with that one. Um, A&M's probably a toss-up. I don't know much about how they're doing this year. Um, I know Ole Miss has won a couple tough games, including uh, beating Tennessee and Florida. Uh, should be out for blood after what Kentucky did earlier this year. Yeah, I know. I think a losing out is definitely a scenario. I don't think they will. I could even see this team with, with some of the changes that they've made, I guess, at least from a – looking good for for certain stretches standpoint can maybe even pull an upset or something into the year brandon if you never listen to me talk i'm president of the sharif cooper fan club i've loved his game since <laughs> high school um i'm glad i'm still glad even though he's probably gonna carve up kentucky again on saturday that i got a chance to see him play in the sec but uh, what do you think's gonna happen on saturday when um, auburn comes to lexington it's gonna be another tough test because i mean your man sharif cooper he's he's one of my favorite players to watch too i mean he's He's just he's a magician. He's exactly, he's exactly what Kentucky's guards aren't. And yeah, he's he exactly can, what we needed in this class. I mean, we needed one hundred percent. I mean, you could say I guess the same thing about Cade Cunningham. I mean, they needed a straw that was going to stir the drink for sure. Yep. And I at least wanted it um, to be Sharif Cooper. I just know the way the games called with fouls in college. Not to get off like a tangent on this, but like I just the way that the games officiated and he can contort his body and stuff. I just thought he would be pretty effective than with uh, the freedom that Bruce Pearl gives. But they've cooled off a little bit, too. I think they won 
their last game, but they had dropped a few since, um, you know, he came back. And, of course, Kentucky met him at the wrong time. But if nothing else, I guess you can say the Tigers have cooled off just a bit. They definitely have. Um, yeah, and but it, it, it's going to be, you know, it, it, it's a typical Auburn team. And we, we've already seen them once, so that should, that should help in theory. And, you know, w- when we played them, we actually um, did a pretty good job, I felt like, um, of, of, of slowing them down and not letting them just go absolutely crazy from three-point range. But they're going to be – um, but, but they're still going to, they're going to come out. They're going to probably shoot 33s. Shreve Cooper's going to be driving to the bucket and, and trying to shoot a bunch of free throws and making plays for his teammates. So, you know, we're going to have our, our hands full. I mean, I, I think that, you know, once again, we, we, we've shown game in and game out that we can play with anybody. And it's probably going to be true on Saturday too. Like there's probably going to be a point where we're winning and we feel like we have a chance to actually win the game. But until we, until we actually do it, especially here in the back half of the season, I'm I'm not comfortable saying that we can or should win a game because we've been close enough so many times and just haven't gotten it done. It's just so bizarre just to hear you say that. You know, like we have no, six games left, SEC play at that, and none of us have any confidence that a Kentucky basketball team can win one game. <laughs> um, I took a screenshot. Corey Price, you know, he always comes with a great stat. So, a couple that jumped out at me that he tweeted, I guess it was about this time last night. So, Kentucky is 4-13 and 13 in their last 17 games played. The worst record in any 17-game span in any season in school history. The previous worst 17-game stretch was the final 17 games of the 88-89 season when Kentucky went 5-12 and 12 to end that season. So the literal worst 17-game stretch in school history and also um, Kentucky men's basketball history, which, which they had three one-point losses in the same season, 57-58, and now 20-21. So just some absolutely crazy stats, Aaron. And just for, for you being like a, a student at UK finishing up this season, I'm sure uh, that's probably not how you pictured it four years ago. I'm glad I graduated before this this season right. really took a tailspin. Jesus, no, it's uh, it's been yeah, it's brutal. I mean, you just summed it up, and I think uh, I don't think you mentioned it just now, but this will be the first time because they're not going to qualify even if there is an NIT either. I'm they put a bracket out for that. I saw the other day, and all those teams are about 500 or better. And Kentucky obviously is not even close to that right now, and they can't even finish 500 for the regular season just mathematically. So um, this will be the first time without you know the Eddie's. Um, Eddie Sutton arrow scandals that Kentucky is going to miss either, you know, any playoff tournament, um, just straight up. It'll be the first time since 88, 89. Um, that's just crazy to me. And, but you know what, uh, this team has just not been able to get their stuff together. Um, you can make all the COVID excuses you want, but the talent, um, at least, uh, on paper, this team should be a lot better than what it is. Uh, they found ways to lose games. And, you know, I think that, are they probably better than their record? Sure, but they haven't been able to prove it by putting together, um, you know, 40 minutes of quality basketball and avoiding just the silly, you know, young team mistakes. And hopefully um, we'll see a little bit of a change of philosophy in Cal, just how he forms rosters where obviously it's a shooter's game now. We see it at every level. Um, I was saying uh, last week on this podcast that now covering a lot of the high school ball, here in Indiana, kids are shoot, high school kids are shooting threes at a crazy rate. They're making them at a higher rate than when I was playing just, you know, seven years ago or whatever in high school, six years ago. So, um, right, Without your defense out there, bro. 
<laughs> right. Uh, not so much. But, um, yeah, it's just crazy how much the game's changed. And I hope Cal will, you know, implement that with this next roster. And hopefully, you know, you get a lot of these guys to come back. Because I-, I can tell you, I don't think – I think Terrence Clark might go just because he wasn't able to play that much. And his stock is probably still in a pretty decent spot. Um, maybe late first, early second, good enough to go. But I, I don't think there's anyone on this team uh, that would not benefit from coming back next year, or at least, you know, transferring out and going to another college basketball program. You know, I was really holding that hope. I thought an NIT with just loaded with like blue bloods, Michigan State, I thought that would have been so badass. That would have been really cool. But like you said, it doesn't, doesn't seem likely that even um, they're going to get that much of a shot. But you had a good transition to kind of our last topic. We'll start wrapping up. Appreciate everyone listening to the Cats by 90 podcast. You can check it out on Spotify, iTunes. Um, just search at our AC of Blue or C of Blue, and you can find it on all that stuff. But um, it was a good transition, Aaron, because while we had Brandon a few minutes of his time, I wanted to kind of just get holistic philosophy of Calipari, like recruiting, coaching. I know that that's been brought to the forefront more than ever. Um, you know, when you lose, a lot of that stuff comes out, and, and people really start digging into just the way he talks to the fans, just absolutely everything. So, I'll ask you, Brandon, just like your overall, I know you're a Cal supporter. I know that, but just overall philosophy and stuff, like where do you stand and how much has this season maybe um, changed your opinion of John Calipari? Yeah, I, I think, and, and you said, I mean, first and foremost, yes, I'm a, I'm a Coach, Cal, Coach Cal supporter. I'm a Coach Cal guy. Um, I think he does a really good – I think he's an underrated basketball coach, actually, and I think that he's you know, obviously brought a lot of success to the program. Uh, having said that, I think this year certainly starts to it, – it's fair to question whether it's time to maybe mix things up a little bit. Not, obviously not in terms of his job, but just in terms of his philosophy and how and how he goes about doing things, meaning that, you know, he, he needs to make sure that in every class he has a couple guys that can really shoot. It, in a perfect world, that would be, you know, a, a top ten player who can do all the other things that he wants – and also shoot. But if that's not the case, then he needs to start keep moving down his recruiting list and, and bringing in guys that, that can shoot the basketball because it's it just really hard to win in today's game when you're making six threes a game or whatever, five threes a game, whatever Kentucky might average at this point. Obviously, it went up a little bit after last night's game. But um, so I, I do think he needs to do that. And then really the, the, the toughest part about, you know, the Kentucky system or the coach Cal system is that you end up having guys leave before they should at times. And, and I actually think that is the crux of the quote unquote issue of the Kentucky basketball program right now. It, it, it's a little bit that he's not getting the true cream of the crop players. You know, like he misses out on Cade Cunningham, a couple guys going to the G league now, or, you know, whoever maybe Zion Williamson, different guys going to different schools. Um, but when, when guys like Ashton Hagens or EJ Montgomery leave after their sophomore years and don't get drafted, like th- that's kind of a problem. And I, I don't put that on Cal so much because there's, there's just always so much he can do. You know, he, he can sit there and beg them to come back. But, you know, to be honest, those guys probably didn't want to be in college to begin with. This was just a vehicle to get them to professional basketball. And whether that be in the NBA or playing in Greece or the G League, they just want to do it. And, and that's okay, but it sets the program back. And if we had guys like that, this season would be a heck of a lot different. Um, but we don't. And I, 
I don't really know. I mean, A, that doesn't really answer your question, and B, I, it's not an answer to how to fix things. But I, I, I do think that the biggest issue facing Kentucky basketball is guys leaving when they shouldn't. Um, and I truly don't know how you fix that. Um, and, and maybe it just means you need to bring in more guys. Like a, a lot of fans complain about we generally don't fill out an entire roster of scholarship players. I mean, Kentucky gets 13 basketball scholarships every year. We never once have used 13 scholarships when Coach Cal has been here. Um, so maybe that means we need to recruit two extra guys every year. I don't know. Uh, but it, it is fair at this point to, um, you know, lay some criticism at the feet of Coach Cal. And uh, I, I, I have all the faith in the world that it'll get better. And I think next year will be better and the future is bright and all of that. But um, it is time for him to maybe just take a little bit closer look at how he is recruiting uh, to make sure that things like this year don't happen again. All right, well, real quick, super quick, what does that look like? I've been wanting to ask somebody like you. So you're scouting basketball players. Like, it's, it's, there's got to be more to scouting shooters and just looking at the paper and like, man, that kid shoots, you know, over 40% from threes, volume shooter, whatever. Like, what does that really look like for a guy like Calipari to go in? And maybe it's not a top 25, maybe it's not a top 50, maybe it's not a top 100 player. Like, how do you really go and scout strictly for shooters that can be like immediate impact in the college game, you know, without just looking at the obvious? Yeah, I, I... – I think a lot of that um, can come from, I mean, yes, at, at the end of the day, percentages matter. So if you can find a kid that shoots 45% from three in high school, that probably means it's a pretty darn good shooter. And at times that can translate, but it also like you, you have to go watch a kid play and like, obviously the level of competition he's playing at is going to matter. Like are, are these shots because he's wide open because the other team stinks or is he able to get himself open? Is he, like one big thing in, in college is like how quick of a, of a release does he have and how mm -hmm. quickly can he get the ball off? Like one of the issues with Dante Allen right now, not to dive into that at all, but like he, he's really having to rush to get his shots off because he just, he, he, he can't really get open off of the cuts because he's not like a supreme athlete. So, you know, it, it, and he's the best shooter we have and he's a, he's a great shooter. And if he stays at Kentucky, he's going to have a really nice career. But just different things like that, you have to, you know, evaluate guys and their ability to get open and get shots off at college game speed. Um, and, and I think that's one of the issues of some of the guys like B.J. Boston that, I mean, he's just struggled because he's so physically weak. And that's part of why he hasn't translated to being a good college shooter is because he can't create the space that he could at the high school level. Yeah, I remember watching it. It's always used to impress me when I was at like floor level watching Tyler Hero play because by the time it got to the SEC and NCAA tournament, just a scouting report on him, in the sheer effort he would have to put in just baseline, a baseline, 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 corner to corner to get open and how many times they'd have to reverse the ball towards the end of the season. So you're right, a lot yeah. of that um, is not even just shooting the ball but being able to get open. But all right, we can start wrapping up. Aaron Gershon, do you have any, uh, any final words on, on this week? Or are you ready to just put it to bed? <laughs> Uh, I'm ready for football season. <laughs> that's how that's how uh, UK sports have changed. Uh, I really more I guess the last uh, 12 months, but then, but I feel like the, the momentum has been going in that direction. Which, as a football guy, I love, but I also hate uh, seeing what's going on over there on the basketball side. Yeah, we talked about that, Aaron and I, with Dick Gabriel on the Big Blue Insider on Monday. It's like bizarre old world. Like normally it's, you know, summer heading into fall or whatever, and we're ready to start basketball before winter's here, you know, because the football team stinks. And this year now we're waiting for spring football because of all that exciting stuff. So 
Man, good stuff, Ray. I'm glad you came on. It really was a lot more uh, in-depth stuff than we normally get into. I guess we usually just do a lot of like whining and moaning, at least this year. So this, <laughs> this provided some good insight. So thanks, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it. Yep, we'll do it again soon. I appreciate it again, everyone listening to the Cats by 90 podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Cats by 90. And then you can check us out again, iTunes and Spotify. Please re- leave a review. No one ever does. So it'll be great. You'd be special. Um, and then again, you can find it on there by searching at a sea of blue. Thanks again, and we'll catch everyone next week.